You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Charlotte rode down the main street of Providence. Byron's old hat pulled low over her forehead. She rode past Mrs. Bidwell's boarding house and the bookstore. She rode past Bronson's general store. Mr. Bronson was opening the shutters of the horse and its rider. He noticed nothing out of the ordinary. He glanced up at the click-clocking, and then his eyes slid back down to his hands, fastening the shutters on the pesky hooks under the clapboards. The horse had looked inconsequential. The rider had looked inconsequential. The hooves clopped in the usual way. She tried to take this all in, that the woman in her had died in anguish, and a vengeful man had been born in her place, apparently brooked no notice of the universe. Nor had the universe even blinked in the absorption into itself of her tragedy. It was astonishing to her that the sun had re-risen and shone down on them all in the same way as always before that the townspeople weren't transfixed in shock, dumbfounded, changed outright at the death of the old world and the hollow, hopeless replacement offered in exchange. But no, their lives seemed to be moving on as usual. Charlotte looked around her in dismay. The townspeople were all of them just the same as any other day. How could that be? She rode on past the crumbling brick buildings and the peeling white houses. Everything was temporary. She understood that now. All of this was temporary. It would all be snatched away. It was all on loan. Even the people we love, they were all on loan. One day you see their face across a rickety table, or you pass them hurrying from here to there, or you see them leave you in your bed, and their profile passes you by. And you didn't know your thoughts somewhere else. And then they're snatched away forever, and you did not know to say goodbye. You did not know. It was going to be a bracing autumn day. The leaves were glimmering in the early light. They'd been turning crisp in the cold night and rattled now in the breeze. They were orange, gold, and red. In her old life, she might have called it glorious. But now she knew the truth about all this beauty. Abstinence from liquor is requested. But if you must drink, share the bottle. To do otherwise makes you appear selfish and unneighborly. If ladies are present, Gentlemen are urged to forego smoking cigars and pipes, as the odor of same is repugnant to the gentle sex. Chewing tobacco is permitted, but spit with the wind, not against it. Buffalo robes are provided for your comfort during cold weather. Hogging robes will not be tolerated, and the offender will be made to ride with the driver. Firearms may be kept on your person for use in emergencies. Do not fire them for pleasure or shoot at wild animals as the sound riles the horses. In the event of the runaway horse, remain calm. Leaping from the coach in panic will leave you injured, at the mercy of the elements, hostile Indians, and hungry wolves. If the team runs away, sit still and take your chances. Forbidden topics of discussion are stagecoach robberies and Indian uprisings. Also, don't discuss politics or religions, nor point out places on the road where horrible murders have been committed. Expect annoyance, discomfort, and some hardships. If you are disappointed, thank heavens. Karen Kondasian is an award-winning theater, television, and film actress. She played Kate Holliday in the TV movie Shootout at the OK Corral. She's the author of the Actors Encyclopedia of Casting Directors. Her first novel is The Whip. Thank you for joining me, Karen. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. This is a wonderful Western. 
but it's very unexpected. Your main character, Charlie Parkhurst, is like something out of the 21st century, not the 19th. Tell us a little bit about how you discovered this character. Well, I was in my 20s, and I remember I used to read Cosmopolitan magazine, How to Get a Man. <laughs> and I remember reading an article about wild women of the West. And there was a little piece of Charlie Parkhurst in it. And I thought to myself, how in the world would a woman be able to, to hide with all those macho men? I mean, how did she pee on the trail? I mean, you know, all the guys sort of did it together. You know what I mean? How did she have her period? I mean. I know it's, you know, bouncing along on the, on the road, and how did she cover her body? I had all these questions, and it used to, you know, I w every once in a while it would knot me, and then I'd forget about it, and, and then my mama passed away, and I had all these feelings and emotions, and I thought, well, no, why not put it into a book? Take the story of Charlie. I'm feeling a lot of things right now, and, you know, my mo emotions are accessible. So write with it, paint with it, instead of mourning and, cele and celebrate her. And so I started, and six years ago, it took me six years and 27 drafts, <laughs> and I finally finished it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was an extraordinary adventure. It's such an interesting book. I can, it's, it's great that the writing it was an adventure because the, the story is an adventure too. It's, it's really exciting. And you've done a really great job of framing the story. You, you put it in kind of a little frame for us. So talk about that decision of how you set up the narrative to tell the story because you don't just start at the beginning and go to the end. You give us a kind of a nice little intro and outro and get it, walk us around this unusual life. Oh, you're very clever to catch something. Very few people catch about that little frame. Um, what I did do was, if you remember, there's the scene of her dying at the beginning, and she inhales. Very few f people see that I don't have her exhale. She inhales, then there's the whole book, her story, and then the last chapter, or the second to the last chapter, is her death again. It's the same chapter, only I've changed some things in it. Um, and she exhales. So what I tried to show was that life is one breath, that we inhale, life is so fast, we have to put our arms around it and really enjoy it, really embrace it, because we exhale very quickly. Now, uh, Charlie Parkhurst was a really unusual woman for her time. She was <laughs> an unusual stagehand for her time. Talk a little bit about, you give us her birth and her childhood. How much of this did you pull out of research and how much of it did you create out of the whole cloth of your imagination? I took all the facts we know about her. Mm -hmm. um, there's really kind of four predominant facts about her that, that we know. And then the rest of it, I novelized. Um, because nobody knew that she was a woman until they got her ready for her funeral, and then all of a sudden they went, oh my God, the great Charlie Parkhurst is a woman. <laughs> they couldn't believe it. All the doctors were running there from Santa Cruz and San Francisco to check out her body because it was unbelievable that in that very male-orientated time that a woman would have been a famous stagecoach driver. And they did a sort of autopsy on her and they realized that she had a child. So I took, you know, I, I went to Watsonville, Waltonville, where she is, of course, buried in the, of all places, the Oddfellow Cemetery. And I talked to um, some older folks there whose great-grandparents knew Charlie, knew of her. Of course, you can't depend on the truth of those things because things get exaggerated. But again, I took everything that I could, interviews, uh, research, and then I just created this 
it's very strange, but there were times writers all say this. Once in a while, it feels like you're channeling. And it was like I knew, I knew something for sure that such and such might have happened to her. And so I just wrote. And it, so it, on the cover, it says it's inspired by a true story, a novel. Now, in the back of the book is Charlie Parker's New York Times obituary, 1880, January 1880. And in that obituary, it says her story is so fascinating that someday a novelist should write about her. So 132 years later, I did. Yay. <laughs> now, one of the things I really like about this book is the way you capture <clears throat> the Western setting in the world back then. And I think you do a great job from the, the orphanage back east where she's born and dropped off and her journey west. Talk about creating these kind of contrasting worlds of the more civilized back east, but still to us remarkably uncivilized and kind of brutal and Dickensian to the completely, the truly wild, wild west. Yes, well, she was born. Uh, she was born, and then somehow put into an orphanage in the East, New New Hampshire. Um, that we know for sure. And so I had to do research on. Oh my God, the orphanages were just terrible. I mean, it was like, it, it was very much Dickens. D Dickens, you know. I, when I was writing it, I I thought, my God, it, I'm I'm writing from you know Great Expectations or Oliver Twist. <laughs> The, uh, you know, some church orphanages, and once in a while a private person would put some money into a house, and these kids were allowed to be wild, you know, just kind of wild children, and they were beaten a lot. And then, to answer your question, um, then, of course, the reason. We, I had to find a strong reason that she would put on male clothes and travel to California during the gold rush. Um, you know, I, I'd like to say something, which is that a, a lot of people don't know that during that period of time, a lot of women put on britches. You had two choices as a woman then. You could be a wife or a prostitute. And if you could read a little, you could teach a bit. That was it. A woman could not have any dreams. Only men could have dreams. So those women like me, which were free-spirited women, they put on men's clothes so they could travel easily, you know, and safely. And in fact, in my research, I found out that during the Civil War, there were women who fought in the army. And they were not found out, they were women, and then they went home and had children. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, as you say, uh, we go from the East Coast, which was relatively civil, well, um, and then to the West Coast, which was this mad, crazy world of gold and, you know, people dying and killing each other and just, just for gold, you know, and it was the fantasy of every man to come there. It was like going to Las Vegas, I guess. <laughs> You know, finding gold, picking gold up, and becoming a, a millionaire. Um, and very few people became millionaires. What you do, I think, is that's very interesting, is you give Charlie um, a kind of a father figure and a love interest back east. And between the two of them, they're they're kind of a crucible in which her character is forged. Yes. And what is interesting is how um, authentic it seems in the way you write it, yet how contemporary many of the themes are reflecting you know, some of the issues that we're still dealing with today. So I'd like you to talk about um, conceiving of this uh, forge in which her character is, is created and then uh, plotting that out with the, and creating the people did the yes. people come first, or did the idea this I want to she's going to become decide to become a male because of this? The idea came first. I did have the people in my mind. Um, I wanted her to have a father figure. 
She needed someone to guide her and teach her about horses. And in real life, she did. There was a man who taught her. He happened not to be black, but he did teach her all about horses. And I wanted somebody that, you know, gave her some kind of sustenance and some kind of, um, you know, he kept saying to her that you've got to go out, that you've got to go into the world and embrace it. Mm -hmm. And he taught her uh, to, to dare to dare, which even to this day people are afraid to do. Um, and so then I thought, oh, it would be so interesting that the person she falls in love with, it would be natural that he also would be an African-American man. Of course, they didn't, at that time, you were not called African-American. They were considered black. In fact, they, you know, uh, one uses the N-word because that's how uh, the Negro was called. And it's interesting, uh, partway through the book, you say, oh, this is a new word. And, and I thought that was interesting. Oh, okay, you mean? Yeah, no, no, oh. a, a, a Negro. That, that, was a, that was a neologism at that time. Yes, a new yes, way to and refer also to. there were a lot of words, by the way, that mm -hmm. I found. I found the word okay mm -hmm. came up in the mid-1800s. It was an Indian word. It must have sounded like an Indian word. <laughs> and so the Americans took it and changed it, of course, to okay, which meant, you know, how they'd trade things. Mm -hmm. And the, in the Indian must have said you know, a certain word sounded like okay. So that's how we have okay. Wow. <laughs> Very interesting. One of the things I think that's interesting about this book that really fascinated me was uh, the idea of horses. I'm somewhat on the fence about horses myself. I find them fairly terrorizing. They're large beasts. Yes. Uh, and, but you, you give us a real insight into, how, into working with horses, and I'm wondering how much time you yourself have spent with horses, how much of your own experience with horses went into the, the making of Charlie Parker's understanding and empathy with horses. I've always loved horses. I had a horse when I was a little girl. And, but later on, and took a, I could English and Western ride, but later on um, in Utah, in St. George, Utah, there's this fabulous Mustang, wild Mustang ranch. And I would go there several, I've been, I went there about four times, and there are these two women that run it. And what it is is instead of, you know, I don't know if people know that a lot of wild Mustangs have been killed and shot because they can damage the land and all kinds of things, they say. Anyway, this ranch, these wild Mustangs live, and they're taken very good care of, and they're free. They can run. They can do, but they always come back and eat there and sleep there, whatever. And so I had this wonderful adventure. These two women taught me. They come from a kind of Indian mentality where the horse was a spiritual guide. The Indians always felt the horse was their spiritual guide. And these horses, oh, I had the most amazing experience because these are untamed horses. And you are taught by the end of your sessions with these horses the woman said, all right now, put your arms around his neck and breathe with him. Now, this is a gigantic, wild Mustang. I had spent about three hours already with him and bonded a bit. I put my arms around him and I breathed with him and it was, the mo it was one of the most moving experiences I've ever had to this wild beast just breathing with me and accepting me. And at, to answer your question, I learned a lot from these women. You know, um, it's interesting too, the, the kind of uh, technology uh, of stage coaches and the, the way that um, Charlie learns to control the horses. I mean, that's a very specific, mm -hmm. I mean, I was reading that and thinking, you know, that's kind of like uh, these guys who are using a Wii controller or something, you know, a game kind of, a video game kind of controller. It's a similar kind of motor skill where you're using, making small motions with your hands to control something big and vast beyond you. Well, there were six horses, six team, and you had six uh, reins, 
that you had to manipulate between your fingers. So it was very much, I describe in the book, of like playing a piano. I mean, it was, and also there had to be a great instinct and communication. I know that sounds odd, but a kind of spiritual, uh, instinctual communication with the horses for the rider to have. Um, and it was a very difficult process. First of all, to handle the reins. Second of all, to have this communication with the horses and to trust them. Did you ever uh, do this? No, I've never driven a coach, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> I'm lucky I could just ride a horse. <laughs> now, uh, when we first meet Charlie, and, and she's, you know, old, she's, she's ab about to die, one of the things I thought was so interesting, you made the decision to have her think of herself as a man. Yeah. It's he. And I thought that was a really interesting uh, call for you as a writer. Towards the end, if you notice mm -hmm. in her older age, I imagined, I did that, I, I, she's a she mm -hmm. throughout the book, once um, she puts on the, her female clothes, but then there's a moment, and you caught it again, good for you. Um, it's a very subtle thing where suddenly I would imagine, I mean, just imagine now, you've lived 30 years as the other sex. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that you would start thinking of yourself as that sex. Sure, I mean. You know, you, 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 I don't think you think of yourself anymore as a woman or a man, whichever, you know. But she, um, yeah, I think she really felt like she was a man towards the end. You know, when, you, uh, when we uh, meet her and her, her brief, she has this brief idyllic moment of, of happiness before she embarks on her journey um, when she's living with a farrier, Byron. Yes. And I think this is that you paint this picture very well and it's also really dire and kind of upsetting to read what, what, what happens. And I'd like you to talk about uh, the emotional arc for you creating that scene and using that as a, as a I guess, a cannon to, to fire her out into the world. Well, you're exactly right. I had, to f I had to find a cannon, and it had to be something so strong, so, so unquestionably um, violent and ugly and something she had to revenge that she would do this thing of putting on male clothes and taking this huge journey on a ship to California from the East Coast, which was no small feat, um, and get to California now. We didn't have the internet then. So to find somebody, you couldn't just, you know, find somebody. So it took a th almost 30 years. That's one of the things I think you do well is you put us in that mindset and use that as a driver to, uh, to literally flip her switch. Yes, and you know, we have everything from little uh, betrayals mm -hmm. to suddenly, uh, oh my God, that poor doctor in Connecticut, if you remember, who had a lovely Connecticut doctor and his wife and his two girls were raped and tied to their beds and burned and he crawled out. They thought he was dead and he was able to crawl out to the next door neighbor they finally captured these monsters, and they asked this man, now that we've, he's, they're going to be executed, can you forgive them? And he said, I cannot forgive evil. Do you remember that story? Oh, yeah. That doctor? Yeah. You know, I just, I shake when I think of that. Um, you know, there have been people before we had uh, x-ray machines and things 30, 40 years ago where I remember a man's little son was, five, six-year-old son was raped and murdered. And I read about that he took a gun and he went into the, you know, and he, and he tried to kill the person in the, in, in the, in the not the jail, in, during the trial. And, you know, we, how do we handle? I asked my archbishop mm -hmm. the same question. It was interesting. What did he say? I was expecting him to go immediately. Oh, yes, of course, you know. And he's a very brilliant man, and there was a long pause. And he said, 
Well, you see, I'm Armenian and so is he. And I don't know if you know that the Armenians, there was a genocide mm -hmm. in 1915. Oh, yes. Which the Turks have never, ever admitted to. Right. Okay, so he said, I could, we both were thinking about that, and he said, I think if I was asked to forgive them, and I could see with all their hearts they wanted and needed my forgiveness and they meant it, I could and would, but not without. And that's an archbishop. Mm. So, you know, if he can't immediately go, yes, yes, I would forgive, <laughs> you know. Anyway, the book is really a female unforgiven. If anybody watched Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, it, I kind of call it a female unforgiven. Uh, that's, a, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, one of the uh, questions that's at the core of this book is the question of self-identity, is, mm. is who are you, what are you, how do you define yourself? And I think that this book is a great exploration of that in, a, in an unusual context, the, the, you know, the, the West. So I'm wondering if you talk about just the um, brotherhood, as it were, of stagecoach drivers mm. and how respected that occupation oh. was and how Charlie Parkhurst, I think the respect that that occupation commanded really helped her forge this new identity for yes. herself as a man. You're totally right. Well, the stagecoach drivers were the rock stars of their time, mm -hmm. seriously. I mean... Top guns. Know, ta they were top guns. And, you know, the girls were all in love with them no matter their age, no matter how old and drunk they were. You know, they were the guys. And they also, you know, they, they really s protected their passengers a lot. I mean, Charlie killed the famous outlaw Sugarfoot. That's true. She, he, he robbed her stagecoach, and then she s and did rob it, and she said, okay, you do it again, you're in trouble. Anyway, and he robbed it again, and she killed him. So, you know, these, they, protect, they were protected. The, the stagecoach drivers were usually great shots, and, and they were a little drunk sometimes. A lot of them were drunkards, I, I read about. But Charlie didn't drink on the trail. She was pretty sober. But you know what's interesting? I don't mean to go off subject a bit, but she um, died of tongue cancer, mouth cancer, mm -hmm. from chewing too much chewing tobacco and smoking too many cigars and drinking too much whiskey. And the person she voted for, who was, she was the, no, well, we think she was the first woman to vote in America as a man, mm -hmm. um, for General Grant, he died of the same thing. But that's sort of so interesting. You know, the, uh, the state of medicine in this book is, is really interesting too. The, uh, it, I love the way you characterize the doctors that, they're, they're, we like the doctors in this book. <laughs> yes. Well, most of them drank too much again. You know, they were loners, and, you know, they weren't like, you know, unless you were in a big city, probably San Francisco or, or, or New York, probably the doctors were a little more like we know. But mm -hmm. they were country doctors, you know, and they were lonely. And, yeah, I, they were, I wanted to make them real human beings, you know. I love too this your version of, of the of the Wild West, the real West. Uh, you give us it's it's a pretty violent place. There's a place called Hangtown, and <laughs> where known for its its hanging humans. And she at one point comes to a, a, a horse thief with a T carved in his forehead. So I'd like you to just talk about you know folding the violence into this narrative of a woman, which is, this is very unusual. I mean, the way, <laughs> it's not your average girly book. <laughs> no, there is a lot of violence in the book. A lot of bad language too, which mm. by the way, um, people, that's how men spoke in those days. That was their communication. We still do. Yes, <laughs> but not every other word. <laughs> not, well, most of us. <laughs> you know, if you watch Deadwood, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I, I didn't watch Deadwood while I was writing this because I didn't want to be influenced, but I have now watched some of it, and my God, you know, I don't think there's uh, one sentence where there isn't at least five really big curse words in it, you know, long words. Um, anyway, um, this was a, 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 
a time of survival. Mm -hmm. You had to be tough, uh, particularly in the West. Um, it, it was a place where, you know, you could die of disease really easily. It was a lot of gunfighting. People didn't like you. You got you, you know, and you didn't get trials really much. You were supposed to, and the sheriffs would get very upset if you took things onto your own hands. But they did, and so, for instance, there were all these bounty hunters, and this person you're talking about, that they would have these picnics where it was a, hang a sun Sunday hanging, and the children would come and they bring picnic food, and and they'd sit and watch the hanging. Now, uh, one of the things I love, too, about this book, since I, I live here, are the Northern California connections, San Francisco and, and Watsonville and, <laughs> and the Pajaro Valley in Santa Cruz. Uh, you even give us the Wells Fargo Bank in downtown Santa Cruz. Talk about researching <laughs> these, these Northern California connections. Yes, yes. Well, that was her country. That was her, you know, she, she drove from up the coast. Um, she started in Watsonville and then she would go up and I really wanted to get as careful as I could in terms of research so again I went to Watsonville and I asked about the Wells Fargo Bank and where it was in San Francisco I went to there's a big Wells Fargo Museum on Montgomery Street and they said the original Wells Fargo was right here and there was this restaurant that mm -hmm. was across the street, and that's the restaurant I have her dining in. Oh, that food sounded good. <laughs> yeah. Some of the food sounded good. <laughs> some of it, yeah. Some of it, maybe not so good. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not eating any beaver tail stew anytime soon. Um, I, I like your, the sense of, too, of the, the uh, other, the, the woman in Charlie's life. And this is a really interesting turn for this story, and I'm guessing that this comes out of your research. Talk about creating these characters, and, and again, one of the things you face is that the challenges you face as a historical novelist, it's kind of like a game of shoots and ladders. You have these things you know to be true. You can't write around stuff that we all know to be true, and you have other areas where you don't know anything, and you get to make it all up. Right. So talk about, uh, you know, making that walk through, through the chutes and ladders. Well, you know, I think that actors, which is what I, of course, have been since I was eight, um, actors have a, a little step up in terms of, uh, if they have the passion and the dedication and the willpower, to write, I think they can be some of the best writers because um, in terms of character, mm -hmm. they're able to create the inside out. They create inside out first mm -hmm. when you take a character on. They're able to really instinctively um, understand why people do things. And also, I was taught by Lee Strasberg, the great acting coach, of so many like Brando and James Dean and and he used to always say logic logic is so important in your work so as a writer you know I w really needed to follow logic mm -hmm. always that was very important to me because so many times in a movie or a play you'll see something and you go like you know that doesn't make sense I mean why did they do that there's something left out or um, I mean I even had to do things like you know, when there's that gunfight at the end with Lee, mm -hmm. um, I get kicked at the door. I had to keep understanding, was I on the left side of the door or the right side? And if the door opened from the outside and you shot inside, what would... I mean, it's very complicated. You had to block the scene as if you it were a play. That's exactly right. And as an actor, I could do that. Mm. And actors also are good at backstory. You know, figuring out we're really good at taking just some words on a page and then creating a whole life mm -hmm. behind it. And that's, well, that's one of the things I think that senses that we get from this book. Um, in the science fiction world, they call it world building, where you have to create a world out of whole cloth. And I, you have to do the exact same thing in a, a, a Western. I mean, the, the world that exists in the whip is no more familiar to me than is, you know, 
Frank Herbert's Dune out in space, <laughs> I might know more about Frank Herbert's Dune, to be honest. <laughs> but but uh, so I'd like you to just talk about uh, creating that kind of world out of whole cloth, too. Yeah, it's uh, it has to do with a lot of uh, passion for your subject. Mm -hmm. Anybody out there who's interested in writing, you know, you have to really choose something that obsesses you. Mm -hmm. It has to become an obsession because otherwise, why would you stick like I did for six years, you know? And so if it's an obsession, then you're always thinking about your characters. You're always seeing, oh, that person is sitting like that. That would be an interesting way for my character to sit. Mm -hmm. Or I once saw somebody um, like Lee does, I have a description of he's always, his eyes are always like he's looking into the sun. Mm. I, I met someone who was always looking at you like he was squinting in the sun. Well, it gave that, it, it gives that person a kind of like he doesn't trust you all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, it's always watching your world and using your world as oil colors to paint with in your work, in your writing. Well, that's, very, that's an interesting way of putting it. I like that because uh, I think, too, you do a good job of creating the, the smells and the songs. There's a song that somebody sings <laughs> early on about father drank rum. Is that a real song? That's a real song, yes. Uh, that was a, 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 a um, I think it was, it was written by a woman named Parkhurst, no relationship to Charlie. And it was... You know, the it was a suffragette song. Mm -hmm. and, and what's so interesting is I had, Charlie didn't talk about this, but I had this vision of Charlie going into SoCal to vote, and all of a sudden suffragettes around her screaming at her, you know, and throwing things at her, not realizing that she was a woman. First woman to vote in yes. SoCal. That's where are my local. Uh, Not only in SoCal, they think it for sure in California. Mm. And you know, I think it was Tennessee that I think it was one year before the United States allowed women to vote. But you know, on her tombstone it says she's the first woman to vote in the U.S. Mm. One of the things you we get a little bit of in here, and I think that this. Um, informs the writing of this book is you give us some uh, Wild West tall tales. There are, the guys are sitting around the table talking about being buried alive and, <laughs> and the various devices they have to cheat this. Yeah. And I thought that that was a kind of a nice story within the story. Um, and when we're reading that, those little stories, we're thinking, well, you know, that kind of vision also informs this story. It's, you know, it has, it's just enough kind of uh, bigger than life that it seems true to life. Well, all those stories that Edmund told, mm -hmm. the character of Edmund, were true. Mm -hmm. Those are true stories um, that I got, again, from my research. But I wanted Edmund to be, it's interesting that most men who read the book, the character that they would like to play if they were actors, is Edmund. Mm -hmm. I, I, too, I like this. I'm going to get back to this because you talked a little bit about this, about how your acting career as an actress informs your work as a writer. Talk about turning what, for you as an actress, is an internal monologue or maybe some notes scribbled on a paper into actual prose. One of the ways I write, it sounds so bizarre, but I write late at night after midnight because I'm tired and we all know as actors that when you're tired you do your best work because you don't push mm. and I give myself permission to write as badly as I can you know one of the things that stops people from writing is the first sentence it's like oh my god I, they didn't like the way they wrote it or the you know, if you want to write something out there, just give yourself permission to write really badly, just anything that comes into your head, and then you clean it up later is what you do. But when you do that, you become very brave, and you become outrageous, and you s say things like, I don't know if you remember the part where um, Edmund and, and, and Charlie are making love and he's singing to her and he's mm -hmm. singing an Irish ballad. Well, 
I was in this very peculiar mood and I was and I started writing this I wanted a little bit of a love scene so just I don't know how it came out and why I just wanted to write this crazy wild love scene and it came out and I loved it mm -hmm. you know it's kind of bizarre and interesting and I did that because as an actor we all know that you have to go as far as you can at what actors do in rehearsal is they go from soprano to alto and what I mean by that is they go as big and as crazy and wild as the character can go and then they get as quiet and as internal and as emotional soft you know easy and so what you're doing is you're finding all the colors and so that I did the same thing in my writing it's you know it's really hard to explain the actors process mm -hmm. Um, and it's hard to, in a funny way to explain the writing process, except actors are more, they can access their emotions easier. Mm -hmm. we have a, I have a way of doing it that just through breathing. I went to school in England at the wonderful London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, and they taught me this wonderful method through breathing where you can access your emotions really easily. And so as a writer, I did the same thing, which is that if it was a part of loss, Mm -hmm. where you know I would then do this acting exercise bring up the feeling of loss and then write it right through it when I wrote about the loss of um, her husband um, my fiance dropped dead on New York uh, of a heart attack when we were together and so I accessed that and I wrote I wrote that that's what that's about it's my loss only you try to make it poetic you try to find a lyricism and a beauty as opposed to and, and also something that can help others something that's universal universal but, but also grounded in specifics yes exactly and the specifics what's interesting is that in your writing you reimagine your own specifics into something else you transform that's them it. that's a transformative uh, process that's for you exactly then. what actors do interesting uh, and uh, that's, I think, why I th one of the things, the strengths of this book is the strong prose voice. Hmm. Um, that even though the character undergoes all these kind of radical changes and goes back and forth, at one point she's kind of going back and forth between her literally living two different lives. And I think that was, a, was an interesting choice for you. Do you know, do we know that she did that? No. No, we don't. Well, I thought it was, it, it, it What's interesting is that you managed to make it ring true. And it, it's also, too, it, it has a, this whole book has a lot of contemporary um, relevance, even though it's set a hundred and something years ago. It has, a, one can't help when reading this but think, oh, wow, I mean, that's kind of, we have this kind of thing happening today, and, and it's, this relates to this. And I think you do a good job of, were you deliberately transforming some of the things that happen today into the Wild West, or did you just discover them there? Discovered. Discovered it. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and you're absolutely right. There's so much that is, we're still dealing with. I mean, we're still dealing with the issues of black and white in America. Not like we did in the 60s, but there's still those issues. I mean, we have a president, a wonderful, pre well, it's up to you whether you think he's wonderful or not, but it's wonderful that he got to be president. I'm very proud that we made uh, an African-American a man president, whether you believe in his politics or not. But, you know, we're still dealing with that. You know, there are still people out there who are against that and think only a white man, in fact, you can see in one of the barroom conversations. Mm -hmm. You know, I have that conversation several times. Yeah, I thought, and I thought it was interesting. I thought it was well, you handled it well within the, the sense of the narrative. Now, uh, one of the things that I, when we read this book, uh, we think, well, when's the movie coming out? Oh, lovely. <laughs> well, let me say this. Um, the next step of the book is, I just found out a couple days ago, in fact, this is the first time I'm going to announce it, that um, it's going to be an audio book, mm -hmm. 
And I'm very excited that the woman who starred in Deadwood... Oh, really? ...who played Calamity Jane, who mm -hmm. I think she was nominated... I know she was nominated for an Emmy. Um, Robin Weikert mm. is going to read it, and she's so wonderful, and she's so gifted. And, I mean, she, when she plays Charlie, because she would play Calamity Jane, when she plays Charlie, I've heard, I've heard a little piece already of it. Mm -hmm. She's brilliant. Um, and also, um, the movie, oh, God, my dream. My, you know, I'm in Carmel, and, and I happen to be staying at the Mission Ranch. My dream is, is, is you know, that a f my fairy godmother would appear and, and that Clint Eastwood would direct it. He hasn't done a Western in 20 years, and it's a female Unforgiven. I mean, I realized that after I wrote it. Mm -hmm. And that the best actress, who do you think? I, I'm going to give some names, and you give me some names. I, I have no idea. Okay. What about Hilary Swank? Oh, yeah. Uh, what about Kate Blanchett? Hmm? Remember, Kate Blanchett oh. was nominated for Bob Dylan playing Bob Dylan. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> yeah. um, what about the young girl, Jennifer Lawrence, who was in Hunger Games? Hmm. You know? I like, I like Hilary Swank. Yeah, I know. Well, Hilary Swank has got the, the mojo. Mm -hmm. And, my God, imagine the two of them together again, yeah. Mr. Eastwood and, and her. Well, there you go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and if that doesn't work, I mean, if a movie doesn't work out, then I, it might make a great HBO mm -hmm. series because, or, or at least miniseries, because, you know, this was the adolescence of America. Mm -hmm. This was, America was stretching and growing. It was about 12, 13 years old in terms, <laughs> you know, and through the book you see That's it getting, an interesting way of yeah, putting it. Well, yeah, well, it was, and it uh -huh. gets to be... At, by the end of the book, America's about 17 or 18, you know? And, and it, it, so it's that great period. And, you know, I didn't write, but she took some famous people on her stagecoach. Mm. And, you know, we could bring in Mark Twain. We could bring in so many people if it's an HBO show. Mm. So, you know, I think it, you're right. I think it has a lot of potential because it's a very, it has an arc of you wanting the leading character to succeed. Mm -hmm. I, I just wanted to tell you that it's interesting. I've gotten so many letters, mm -hmm. particularly from women all over the United States. One in particular I remember um, made me cry, actually. Um, she said she found the book in the new book section of her library. She lives in a little town in Ohio somewhere. And she said her husband had just died and her son had tried to commit suicide She'd lost her house, and she had no insurance. She said she read the book, and she said, it gave me hope. She said, if Charlie could survive all of this, I can too. So it gives me goosebumps even to speak of this now because, you know, we all want to help each other. We all want to be of assistance, really, mm -hmm. with each other. And if this book in any way can, can help people survive some of their losses that would make me very happy. Well, good books, I think, are manufacture uh, memories that are equivalent almost to memories of actually doing things. Mm -hmm. I think that's the power of prose, uh, as opposed to, I think, as much as I like movies and TV, I think that when you, the process of reading a book and transforming the words into the story allows you to uh, essentially write, to direct, and populate the movie in your head and that process creates a memory that's very strong and I think uh, uh, powerful in a way that no other art form is and that's I think what your book does very well I can go and visit these various <laughs> places in your book as if, as if I'd been there. Well, that's beautiful thank you for that um, I believe I agree with you about reading um, and for me, it's reading a hard book, I mean, a book. Mm -hmm. I know people enjoy e-books, and I even know somebody who read uh, my book on an iPhone. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, I think it's iTunes or something that you can get it from, and, yeah. and you get the e-books from Amazon. But you know what? The hard book to me is, is, is the thing, to hold it and turn the pages and to live that life as you're turning the... P you know what I mean? There's oh, yeah. something about the turning the pages that, for me, is... 
um, and as I get closer to the end, if I love a book and I see I only have 10 more pages, you know. In fact, I've on, on Amazon, you know, some of those letters, I have people writing to me that they read, that they finished it and they read, started it again. Mm. They read it again, uh, which, you know, makes me very happy. Well, books are a great technology. It's easy to forget that uh, books are probably the oldest form of technology we have that is still in use, constant use. I mean, there's like, you know, books, what, four or five hundred years old practically, 1450. Right. So, yeah. That's right. So that's, a, that's an old piece of technology right. to use essentially unchanged. The way we make right. them is different, but the books themselves, bound pages, it's in, still around. That's right. It's in our genes almost, yeah. you know. <laughs> Turning pages. <laughs> and, and stories, too. I think that oh, the, the around story... Around the fire, you yeah. know? The Indians did that. They, they passed their tradition on in stories. Probably every, every nationality has done that. Mm. That the story of their, of their family or the story of their city or their culture. Well, humans are a narrative species. If I ask you who you are, what you're going to do is tell me a story. That's it. Oh, you're exactly right. In fact, I encourage everybody listening to take a, I call it a tape recorder. I know it's not a tape recorder anymore, but that's what I call it. Take a tape recorder. Don't worry about the beginning, middle, or end. And just start talking about your life and your memories. And then after you've done that for a week, maybe, transcribe it. There's something called Dragon. I think it's Dragon Software. Oh, yeah. It's, and uh, it'll transcribe it for dictation. you. Yeah, yes, Dragon Dictation. Yes, Dragon Dictation. And you have a dictation. You don't have to, you know, transcribe it. And you put those 40 or 50 pages on your computer, and suddenly you've started a book. And with the help of Karen Condazian, <laughs> whose new novel is The Whip, thank you for joining me, Karen. Oh, my God. I've had such a good time. Thank you so much, Rick. You're great. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.